the Cell Phone Junkie Podcast, episode 599 for December 3rd, 2017. Qualcomm and Apple both file suits alleging patent infringement, the Supreme Court to decide on warrantless cell location data collection, and Microsoft has the edge browser. My name is Mickey Papillon. And I'm Joey Kappas. Brought to you each week by the Cell Phone Junkie podcast application, available now for Android and iOS for $1.99. Well, kicking off the news this week, Apple on Wednesday filing a lawsuit against Qualcomm over power management patents. So this claim counters a July lawsuit filed by Qualcomm against Apple. Apple says certain Qualcomm Snapdragon processors are violating its patents with respect to battery life. The Apple patents in question ensure that a phone's processor draws only the minimum amount of power needed, turning on and off to make the most efficient use of the CPU. Apple asserts that Qualcomm's patents regarding these technologies are invalid and were awarded after Apple had already developed its own similar technology. The company says Qualcomm is violating at least eight power management patents in the Snapdragon 800 and 820 processors. Qualcomm quickly responding, filing more lawsuits against Apple over, you guessed it, patent infringement. Three new lawsuits say Apple's iPhones violate 16 additional patents from Qualcomm. The company says the Intel modem used in some iPhones is infringing on its intellectual property. In addition to the lawsuits, Qualcomm asked the U.S. International Trade Commission to investigate its latest claims. The ITC has the power to ban companies from importing goods into the country. So the back and forth continues here. We saw this with Apple and Samsung a few years back. And really, the, the ultimate uh, it here is that we're just going to ultimately see one big settlement that's going to happen with all of these patents. Right. Because they'll just, you know, uh, just they just balance themselves out here eventually. It's, uh, you know, they both have huge patent portfolios. And we saw with the Samsung and Apple cases, you mentioned, you know, a stop order never really was issued. And then when that did, it, it one was issued, it was for an iPhone 4 back when I think the iPhone 6 was out or six or something. I mean, it was, it was a phone years and years old that finally got a stop order issued against it. So it's uh, not going to probably come to that, but uh, you never know it. You know, they may have a position that uh, the ITC does decide to do that. The interesting thing about litigation is that not only does it take a long time, but it's about very specific things. So you have to think about it as not a holistic, this is, you know, Qualcomm saying Apple can't ever sell anything again. It's about very specific uh, patents that have been infringed upon and the devices uh, that are impacted are only those that have the potential infringement uh, component in them. And so there's a and, and because they take so long, there's a, a very uh, high likelihood that the device that is in question or devices that are in question are no longer going to be sold when the uh, ultimate decision is made here. So as you pointed out, uh, it was maybe the iPhone 4 or maybe I think on the Samsung side, they were selling the S5 or S6 and this they banned the S3 type of thing. So it, it was really you know irrelevant to the, you know, the business that was happening at that time. And so with technology uh, going as quickly as it does and these new products coming out as quickly as they do, it just doesn't uh, doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, but at the same time, you know, there are uh, obviously, you know, things that these companies are trying to protect. And so they'll continue to move along the same path to uh, these, uh, you know, the, and this litigation. So very interesting stuff here. Sticking on that uh, same track, the Supreme Court on Wednesday heard a case regarding whether or not law enforcement 
can access certain types of cell location data without a warrant. Government agencies do not currently need a warrant when requesting location and other data held by phone companies. That's thanks to a 1979 court case. In that case, the Supreme Court decided a suspect had no reasonable expectation of privacy because he dialed phone numbers into his home phone, and in doing so, he gave the phone company a third party that information. Personal data held by third parties is not as protected as information held by subjects. This third-party doctrine is what allows law enforcement to seek suspects' historical movements from cell phones. A recent case known as Carpenter versus the United States argued that the third-party doctrine is outdated and that law enforcement seeking such data should be required to obtain a warrant as it would for GPS data. Carpenter's lawyers argued taking location data from a third party without a warrant violates the Fourth Amendment. They said most Americans still want to avoid Big Brother uh, following uh, that uh, the uh, case. And uh, Justice Sonia Sotomayor uh, further said that most people take their phones into bedrooms, bathrooms, dressing rooms, places where they expect privacy, although four of the judges judges agreed with Carpenter's basic argument, according to the Associated Press. The panel will make its decision on the matter by next June. So there's going to be a number of months here before an actual decision is made here, but this could change this third-party doctrine if uh, this decision goes in, uh, you know, in the favor of the defendant. It'll be nice to actually have kind of a ruling on this because it is kind of questionable and it does vary from, uh, you know, district to district on how these uh, how this particular uh, law is interpreted. Yeah. And obviously there is a kind of as they mention here in this, uh, you know, in the story and and what's happening with this, there's going to be uh, some pretty sweeping things that are going to be brought into account with how these types of, uh, you know, how these types of situations are dealt with. So as an example, it could be something from, you know, trying to figure out where someone was for um, a very serious capital crime all the way down to, you know, I'll just say petty stuff that's happening and you need to know the location and or other type of information uh, that would be held by the phone companies and to not have a warrant in either of those cases and either of those extremes could potentially lead to one thing or another, either someone uh, being not uh, able to, you know, getting prosecuted where they shouldn't be or uh, companies, uh, you know, having to give up this data to lawyers because they're just being asked for it and because there's no warrant needed uh, and use that as a, uh, as a, a, you know, a crutch for trying to figure out these cases to, uh, to solve the cases. So there's a lot, uh, you know, there's a lot that's riding on a decision like this. And so obviously the Supreme Court taking it very seriously not going to jump to a conclusion. We'll know more in 2018. Verizon Wednesday said it will launch 5G service next year in up to five markets around the country. Rather than provide wireless service, however, the 5G will be offered to residential customers as an alternative to copper or fiber for in-home broadband. Verizon has been testing the service in 11 markets so far this year and will kick off 5G residential service in Sacramento, California during the second half of 2018. Verizon did not name other markets that it will be coming to, though it will be relying on millimeter wave spectrum and technology. The move will help Verizon avoid the costs of deploying wired broadband in those markets. And we've seen services like this for, you know, decades, uh, at least a couple of decades now, where there's a, you know, a single transmitter, like a Motorola canopy system. Uh, They still have it in areas where there's kind of a big mountain around and you can point your antenna at the mountain. You can get, uh, you know, wireless service uh, for, for an internet connection based on these kind of, you know, wireless residential connections. This is nothing new. So it's kind of interesting. uh, Now Verizon's getting into this game. 
Well, and I think they're probably going to, you know, push these unlimited plans that have, you know, uh, some sort of uh, cap on it, as all of the companies do. But at the same time, they're able to do it over a service that is new and is not being used by, you know, 130, 140 million other connections. And and they can test it out and they can figure out what it is that they need to do. And, you know, the, the, the speeds that they're going to be able to to provide, I would imagine, are going to be fairly quick uh, as a result of that, and they'll be able to understand what the scale is going to look like as they get a number of customers on it. So to me, it makes a lot of sense that they start it in this regard so that they can understand what the limitations are, where the the issues are. And I believe this was kind of where WiMAX started out as well, if I recall. I mean, there were uh, there they were not devices that were being used by the general consumer, or the, if they were, it was just like you know, the, 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 the MiFi type of devices, it wasn't uh, you know, it wasn't a phone. And so it's, it's good to t- kind of test the waters and just see how these things are going to respond. Yeah. And of course, uh, you know, I, I, we need the competition here in the market, that's for sure. So if, you know, if we can get more of these, you know, residential style internet connections uh, to add to the competition, that would be great. It would. And, you know, ultimately it's nice to be able to not have uh, the infrastructure uh, that you have to put in place either uh, for both sides of the equation. When you're the customer, you're waiting for that stuff to go in. And when you're the company, it's the cost, the capital costs of putting all that stuff in are uh, very, very high. Verizon Friday announcing the Samsung 4G LTE Network Extender 2. This is a device meant to improve wireless coverage at your house or small business. Like most wireless extenders, the 4G LTE Network Extender 2 plugs into a wired broadband connection and provides about 7,500 square feet of LTE coverage with support for up to 14 simultaneous connections. The extender supports LTE service only and does not provide 1X or CDMA coverage in the house. The device is $250, but there is no monthly service fee associated with its use. In other Verizon news, the company also announced a promotion for the Google 2 Pixel, Pixel 2, excuse me, and Pixel 2 XL. The company will cut the price of either phone by $300 when purchased on a device payment plan. Customers will need to finance the entire cost of the handset, after which Verizon will contribute $300 in total uh, over the course of 24 monthly payments, or about $1,250 per month. The Pixel 2 promo kicks off immediately. And it's been 25 years since the world's first text message was sent. The man who sent the first ever text message told British broadcaster Sky News that he is proud of his achievement. British engineer Neil Papworth sent the first SMS from a computer to a mobile phone belonging to the then director of Vodafone, Richard Jarvis. He told Sky News uh, the message read simply, Merry Christmas. So, you know, SMS, uh, you know, the first time we started getting exposed to that, you know, really was probably what in the mid 2000s, Mickey. And uh, you can go back to the old cell phone junkie episodes and hear me really, really not like SMS and thought you just use the phone, right? Because you've got this phone here. And and at the time, I don't even think either, you know, I know I don't think my phone even supported SMS. It could maybe receive them, but not send them. And it took me actually a bunch of phones later in order to get a device that actually could send an SMS. So, uh, you know, and even then I didn't like it, but then it slowly grew on me. And now I couldn't imagine uh, without SMS or of course now being kind of replaced by iMessage and some of the other services. 
Well, which is, you know, kind of the interesting, you know, caveat to this whole thing is that this technology that, uh, you know, was so revolutionary, like everything else, ultimately gets replaced by something better. The first generation of anything is always replaced by something that's better. And so uh, there are so many other things that you can do with it. And quite frankly, SMS feels a little archaic at this point. Uh, Not that it's, you know, not used. Of course, everyone uses it for various purposes, but it's just it's not as, uh, you know, pervasive as it used to be. Because, as you point out, things like I, uh, iMessage, right, and 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 uh, SMS was originally just a hack onto the signaling uh, onto the phone network that was designed to actually you know make the phone calls and kind of designed to you know give you the destination for the phone calls internally, and they just hacked it in there to make it work over SS7. So that's kind of kind of a kind of an accident that the 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 actual network supported SMS at all. Yeah, and the interesting thing with kind of to to finish up this point is that. Um, you know, to the the extent that we have spent all of our time, uh, you know, we, or we spend most of our time, I should say, on phones uh, these days, and you're sending and receiving messages, um, you know, with so many different people and so many different services. And we've got this one, you know, universal service that we could potentially use to communicate with just about everybody. Um, but it needs still the fundamental piece, which is that signaling that's going across the network, and it's taken almost like feats of engineering to come up with a way to use it not on the cell phone and yet there are still issues that come with that like the phone has to be on because it doesn't it 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 can't just resolve to a phone number if the phone isn't on and then be able to pass it on to other messages so there are very interesting caveats that are still uh, still with us they absolutely are and i don't know if you remember but even even in kind of those early days a lot of times the messages didn't go between carriers i remember on sprint was very notorious that you didn't you, know, you could send messages to other sprint users but in, in and out from other networks it was uh, spotty at best Right. It would, it's crazy to think about right now. And I even still to this day, I feel like I occasionally will see a delay in text messages and how long it takes them to come in, especially in group messages where you've got that, you know, uh, you've got the back and forth going, you know, and you see people uh, will be responding to messages and all of a sudden it'll go blank. And then all of a sudden you'll just filter in with like six or just get dumped to you right at the same time. And that it, it's, uh, you know, again, it seems archaic at this point when we've got services that are much more advanced and in, in operating over data, uh, much more reliable, especially in that regard. Well, no device news this week. So on to software we go. First up, Google updating its core productivity apps for iOS 11 and the uh, iPhone 10 this week. Google Docs, Google Sheets, and Google Slides specifically gain support for drag and drop behaviors of the iPad. Users can select content in one app and drag it to another. On the iPhone 10, the apps gain support for the extended screen aspect ratio. Google has updated many of its apps for the iPhone, including Chrome, Search, Assistant, Drive, and Photos. Uh, Gmail and Google Maps were the biggest notable exceptions. However, uh, it took just a couple of days, and on Thursday, Google Maps and the Google Home applications for both uh, both were updated for the iPhone X. Both have been adjusted to account for that aspect ratio. Uh, the updated apps also solve some bugs and other performance issues. Uh, so we're now just down to Gmail as the last kind of holdout app here from Google that people are using on a regular basis that has yet to be updated. I still have, though, a number of apps on my phone that uh, have not been updated, which um, are very noticeable now when I go to them. And it's um, 
It's one of those things there. I, I, I'm expecting a lot of them just to not get updated because they're just they were kind of one-off applications or applications that were uh, for a very specific purpose. But there's no real reason to update them regularly. Right, and it, it'll take you know uh, it may take a year for this to happen. Uh, it, it took multiple years for some applications to update to some of the newer screen sizes, like what we saw with the iPhone five and uh, even with the iPhone six. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, most of the people that are. Uh, out there using these applications are, you know, probably using older phones um, or they, the companies that have created them are just not interested in doing anything uh, to to get them, you know, updated in a, any sort of quick fashion. I mean, it just doesn't make, you know, financial sense for them to do so. It's providing a service uh, was probably a free app. Most of the apps that I have are free. And so there's no real reason, uh, you know, no incentive for them to do so. Right. Because the app works perfectly fine. It's just not really formatted perfectly for the screen. It just, yeah, and it doesn't look as good as some of the other ones are. But again, it's providing, you know, the functionality that uh, it always has. And so no uh, no reason to uh, to change that. Microsoft this week released its Edge browser for Android and iOS. Edge brings popular desktop features, including favorites, reading list, new tabs, and reading view. It can sync bookmarks and browser history with the desktop and includes a built-in QR code reader. The final version of the app adds roaming passwords, which allow you to save passwords on one device and sync them to others, such as a phone or PC and vice versa. The browser also gains a dark theme. Microsoft Edge is free to download from the Google Play Store and iTunes App Store. So I happen to be one of those people who does use a Windows computer uh, during the day in the enterprise, and uh, I have Windows 7. So I am not uh, familiar at all with Edge. And I realize that Microsoft has come a long way with the browser. Um, it is not uh, you know, at all like IE. Uh, I believe it's based on WebKit, if I'm not mistaken. And so I, I think it's, you know, it's a lot more uh, robust in its functionality. Uh, so, Joey, I'll ask you, as someone who does use Windows 10 um, you know, on a regular basis, is this something uh, that is at any interest to you to, to provide it for an alternative browser on the phone? Uh, you know, it, it isn't, but, but because the phone, of course, the iPhone uses the, the, the it would still use the same uh, Safari kit, web kit that, uh, that the, the built-in browser uses. So for me, it doesn't really mean that much. And I don't use Edge regularly uh, and have all that stuff synced. If I did, maybe that would be a different case. You know, I don't, uh, I don't know, Mickey, if you use Chrome that much, but I know a lot of people prefer the Chrome browser on their iPhone just because all of their bookmarks and all their stuff is in sync. Yeah. And, you know, that's an interesting question. And the answer is no, um, I don't have it installed on either of my devices. Um, and I guess it's because I don't do a lot of, um, you know, real, I, I don't spend a lot of time going to a wide variety of websites. I've got this handful of sites that I go to, whether it's news sites or, you know, my, I'll say the sites for my accounts, whether it's, you know, uh, a phone account or my, you know, my electric service or whatever it is. And so at, at some point along the line, I entered in the information and hit save on the iPad or iPhone. And now it's synced over between those two. So doing it twice is really not that difficult. Um, you know, do it once in Chrome and then once on Safari and, and it's fine. Um, you know, but I do use Chrome on the desktop, whether it's on Windows or Mac. And so I do appreciate having the ability to sync that information between the two. Um, but I don't really care that much about history and stuff. It's mostly just the bookmarks. And again, I, I don't I don't add a lot of bookmarks, so it's it's not that big of a thing. But if you happen to be a Windows user and you happen to use Edge, I could absolutely see this as being an advantageous thing that they've now come out with. So good news there if uh, you happen to be one of those people. 
Google this week announcing Datally. Uh, this app is meant to help mobile device owners manage their data usage thanks to fine-tuned controls. The app lets people view their data automatically uh, or their data usage on an hourly, daily, weekly, or monthly basis. The app will analyze usage over time and deliver personalized recommendations on how to save data. A built-in data saver tool automatically turns off background data usage for all apps and provides instant insight on data usage while people use their apps. Datally will scan for public Wi-Fi hotspots as well and help people connect in order to avoid using the mobile network. Google has been testing Datally in the Philippines for several months and says people have been able to lower data usage by up to 30% each month when using the app. Datally is available for free from the Play Store. It runs on devices with Android 5.1 Lollipop and higher. The HTC U11 began receiving Android 8 Oreo this week. Uh, the unlocked version of the U11 will be the first to see the Android 8 Oreo upgrade, though other variants, including uh, Sprint's model, won't be too far behind. Other HTC handsets that will receive Android 8 uh, Oreo include the 10 U Ultra and U11 Life. In other Oreo news, the Nokia 8 handset was also updated to Android 8. The company has tested Oreo on the Nokia 8 through its open beta labs earlier this year. Uh, it is now fully certified and is being rolled out to the Nokia 8. Should receive uh, should be uh, received by most users by this upcoming week. Android 8 also coming to both the Nokia 6 and 5 in the near future. Essential Products this week updated its camera application for the PH1 smartphone to add new features. Primarily, the app now includes a portrait mode, allowing people to take images of family and friends with a blurred background. The exposure compensation tool is now available in all camera shooting modes, which gives people control over their results. Essential says the camera app now has lower JPEG compression for improved image quality. Finally, the update fixes bugs and fine-tunes performance. The Essential camera application is available to PH1 owners via the Play Store. And finally in software, a very in a very atypical move, Apple late on Friday released iOS 11.2 to the public. The main feature being touted is Apple Pay Cash, letting iPhone owners send funds directly to one another via Apple Pay. The funds can be sent from any credit or debit card associated with the sender's Apple Pay account. iOS 11.2 also introduces faster wireless charging for the iPhone 8, 8 Plus, and 10. Finally, the main reason for the late uh, week and late night release, the update fixes several bugs, including one that caused iOS devices to crash beginning on December 2nd. iOS 11.2 is free to download and install. Apple recommends all users install it at their earliest convenience. Yeah, it's very strange. I, I think I was up at like three in the morning or something on Saturday and saw that a new iOS version was out because uh, I just pulled up the news feed because I was kind of awake and I thought, wow, that's the weirdest time they've ever released an iOS update. Yeah, and, uh, you know, it's not uh, the timing. Uh, obviously, they had to, to get this thing out because of these uh, these issues on December 2nd, which, of course, was Saturday. And so that was the main reason. But it sounds like they were probably getting ready to release this thing any day now anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, uh, missing from the release is actually the, the one of the biggest features is the Apple Pay Cash. It is not uh, it was not available during the weekend for uh, for users. And the, the actual turn on date has not been announced as far as I know. So we'll see what happens. It's still in my beta version uh, that I'm running on the iPad, but it did not appear uh, on my phone. And I would imagine that uh, this is probably something that if they were planning to release uh, 11.2 this week, um, it would have been on Tuesday. So I'm a think I'm thinking here that it's probably early this week, likely Tuesday that Apple Pay Cash actually starts working. 
That's what I would think as well. And of course, also this week, you know, Apple had to release an emergency patch for their high Sierra operating system where somebody or, you know, the, the, the root uh, user was completely uh, in uh, completely vulnerable to being uh, opened by anybody because you could just leave the, the password blank and get into that uh, the root account, which is not great if somebody had physical access to your computer. So uh, Apple's really kind of uh, slipping here in what they're doing with their uh, software. Yeah, there's a lot of security things that are coming up and uh, just bugs. And um, this is just kind of my you know my my feeling over the last couple of years has been that uh, you know until we get into you know, a couple of dot releases in, it doesn't feel like the the versions of iOS specifically are all that stable. And even then, there's still things that come up. I mean, you know, mail is a, a big, uh, you know, example for me is that it's just not as functional um, as it should be, uh, you know, from a reliability standpoint. And that, that just drives me crazy. It's like one of the bread and butter apps that they have. And it's, it's something that most people are using just constantly. And the fact that it can, uh, you know, either be a battery sucker, it can, you know, crash or it can, you know, do these weird things, this weird behaviors. It just, it's unacceptable at this point, but either way, um, there's a, uh, you know, there's, was this update that came out, uh, middle of the night type of thing. And, uh, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll watch to see when Apple pay cash comes out. Cause obviously that's going to be a big deal. Um, and imagining a lot of people are going to want to use it here during the holidays, buying joint gifts, etc. Questions and comments. First up a question from Joseph. He says, I'm wondering uh, what you guys think about the iPhone SE and what's going to happen. Uh, is there going to be an update to it, or will it just be a one-off deal that Apple was decided that they're not going to update going forward? Personally, the size of the iPhone is what I want. Uh, all the others are just too big. I need a lot of screen real estate. Um, if I need a lot, I already have a regular iPad Joseph. Well, you know, I agree with you, and that's uh, why I have an iPhone SE. I, uh, you know, the, it, it, the price is great. That really... Uh, you know, tips me over into it, but the size is really what I appreciate, and the weight. You know, the the new iPhone 10 is very nice. It's got a great screen, but the device itself is huge. I would love to have uh, an iPhone SE size device. You know, with uh, a better, bigger screen. I, I, you know, even if the device was even a little taller, kind of like the iPhone 10, that would be fine. But uh, you know, I, I I hope Apple gets this message on that not everyone wants a huge screen, but of course they're chasing profits and. Uh, you know, the iPhone uh, SE probably isn't that profitable. Uh, however, on the flip side, though, they probably sell quite a few of them, especially to businesses and enterprises. So I, I don't quite, uh, you know, I don't know what Apple's going to do. They have been so unpredictable the past few years is that once they launch a product, they don't always stick with the product. They sometimes just abandon it right away or they release it for a few years and then it goes away. Uh, you know, now it's just kind of a roll of the dice to see if Apple does continue with it. Right. And, you know, I, I think the, uh, you know, as you've pointed out here, I think they'll, you know, they, they'll, they'll be looking at this device and to see how many of them they can sell, um, you know, what the, the latest internals are going to cost and, you know, how that's going to, uh, you know, mesh with the margins that they could get on this device. Um, I, I personally, uh, I have no basis for this, but I hope that they make at least one more iteration of this device for the sake of everybody who's looking for a smaller phone. Um, but past that, I'm I'm not really sure that they're going to get much. We're going to get much more traction out of it. So one thing that makes me think we will not see an updated one in 2018 is the fact that they're still selling the iPhone 6s as a new device, uh, which is not usual for Apple to be doing this to be selling you know the the the, the oldest device uh, still kind of uh, in their uh, you know in their line. So I have a feeling that they may not update it this year just for that uh, just for that alone. Well, and I guess under that context, even though I mean because the the SE and the 6s are basically the same internals. 
you know, if they decide at the end of 18 to release the iPhone 9 and 11 or whatever they decide to do, the 8S and the 10S, uh, I would imagine that would be the time where they would drop the S, the 6S, uh, and have the 7 as the low-end model and then ultimately need to do something then with the SE. But um, again, it's going to be a performance issue, I'm sure, as well, where they'll be watching to see how this thing is going to perform with the latest software, et cetera. So, um, you know, again, hopeful that they have at least one more iteration of it, but, uh, you bring up some good points there as well, Joey. Next up is a question from John. He says, listen to the show every week and I have a question. Have you ever looked into the other side of the net neutrality debate? Um, you only seem to present the one side. If you think back, the internet worked pretty well before net neutrality was implemented, uh, especially when, you know, you think about things like telephones and how they were like before deregulation, how much did it cost to make a long distance call in the 1960s, uh, when there is no or less regulation innovation is allowed to expand there's little evidence that before net neutrality rules the internet was being stifled the free market allows the customer to make decisions and the market responds totally open markets force providers to offer better services this is the same reason why there's an objection to the merger of sprint and t-mobile multiple companies compete when customers uh the customers are the winners our regulation uh, will stifle innovation, uh, let the service providers go at it, and the customers are the winners. Sh- why should the Internet be regulated by the 1930s rules uh, designed for, by the FCC for landlines? Please do some research and let's talk about some of the other sides of this issue, John. Yeah, that is a great point. And you totally bring it up uh, in there is that the totally free market, uh, you know, it's kind of a keyword. And we don't really have that in, the, in our current case. And that's why. And, and you're right, the net neutrality rules that we have right now were put into place only a couple of years ago. Uh, however, they were put into place because the, the, the actual internet providers at the time were, were doing things that violated net neutrality. So instead of, uh, in, instead of, you know, saying to the companies, let's do this, they enforce these rules and change the, you know, the, the, the classification of them to put them into this category where they were net neutrality, uh, net neutrality applied to them. Uh, we've become increasingly reliant on, you know, Comcast and, and bigger companies as they keep expanding their footprint around the country and less and less choice for internet providers now. And that's kind of what has happened. So it's not really a free market. So it really, it really doesn't apply. And it's, it's a weird, kind of a weird situation that we're in. And I wish we did have more competition, like we mentioned earlier with the Verizon. But again, it's Verizon. They own media companies. They're, they're the ones who have a vested interest as well as Comcast to provide the services that are frequently being used by customers now. So it's, it's a strange conflict of interest. It's not just a, a broadband utility fighting against another broadband utility. These are massive, massive companies that have, uh, you know, other forces at work. So that's kind of why if you also want to hear a really interesting uh, discussion on this kind of with more uh, research and more experts, uh, this last edition of Science Friday had a good 25 minute segment on these net neutrality rules and and, and what's kind of really kind of the real situation going on. So listen to that, uh, you know, listen to that episode. It's available on the website and that'll answer a bunch more questions. And, you know, the, the other thing that John brings up that's really, I think, very important is the the regulation uh, of uh, the Internet by these rules that were designed you know, 80 years ago is about as ridiculous as as you can imagine, especially when you're talking about it in the context of technology and almost, you know, the need to be rewriting rules 
um, you know, every eight months, much less every 80 years and in, in how the, you know, how these different technologies are being used. Uh, but I think, you know, as you, as you've pointed out, Joey, that there are, we, we are talking about a very different world uh, with, with all of these services and, and, and how uh, they're, they're all, you know, kind of, you know, vying for all the, the information, number one, number two, trying to make sure that they're able to continue to offer, uh, the types of service that people want to pay for. Um, and, and, and really number three, doing it all in a way that is as a public company profitable for them, uh, in a way that they can, you know, continue to increase, you know, their revenues to provide uh, an ever increasing, uh, you know, cash flow, uh, you know, dividend stream, if you will. So there, there's a lot of things that, that go into, uh, you know, the, the, the big guys that are playing into, uh, this conversation. And again, it's not just like we're talking about, um, you know, a handful of, of, uh, you know, companies that are in a market and they're trying to get, you know, a one in two customers here that are, you know, to make decisions. I mean, we're talking about the, there's what, four main companies here with, you know, Verizon, um, I guess Sprint is really one of the bigger ones in, in some markets. And you've got Time Warner and um, NBC Universal, which is actually Comcast, so not can't even say that. I mean, like I'm trying to even think of who another big one is. Cox, I guess Cox has got a lot. Um, but, you know, th- there's... There, it's not when you when you when you back up and you look at what we're talking about here. We're talking about like these like three, four, five big guys standing in the corner saying, "This is what we're going to do." Do you guys want to do this? Okay, let's do this. If you you got to do it first, and then I'm going to do it, and then you know the other 330 million of us have to just you know on, on the whim of these decisions uh, go. Because what again, I I think about if what I'm sitting here. Um, on a Verizon connection right now, if I decided that they were going to do something that uh, that that I didn't like, then I would have the decision to the point of the open market to go with uh, the cable company that's in my area, which is Comcast. But here's the thing: if they're in collusion on you know some of the things that they're going to be doing, uh, and especially if they can get a if one company can get away with it, then the other guys are going to think about it as well. There's not really a good third option for me. So even though I have two choices, which is good and better than a lot of people, than what a lot of people have, um, it's still uh, not, it, there, there's still not enough choice to, to be able to do this. So there's got to be this regulation in place, I think, in order for for this stuff to really push forward in a way that that is, uh, I'll just say, fair to the customer. And um, you're, you're absolutely right uh, that, you know, call it before five years ago, um, you didn't have these net neutrality rules in place and it didn't really feel like anything was being stifled, but things have changed a lot. And, and Joey talked about that a couple of minutes ago. Right. And things were being uh, stifled and, you know, BitTorrent traffic, for example, uh, Comcast was throttling BitTorrent traffic until they got caught doing it. They uh, completely denied doing it, but you know, the numbers prove it. And that's that reaction right there. And that, that them doing that is what kind of led uh, to the the heat being turned up. And, you know, that that's just what they want to do. You know, they said it was network, tra- you know, traffic shaping, but uh, that's what they want to do. They want to restrict BitTorrent for privacy, uh, piracy and for uh, bandwidth because it's cheaper for them not to provide that uh, protocol over the open Internet. Well, and, uh, you know, I guess the, the third reason you could even say more is that, you know, it's providing uh, content to people that would subsequently then allow them to not have to pay for content that they are providing. And uh, this is where 
um, you know, some of the big uh, debates come in on, you know, the a content creation organization or, or content providing organization versus uh, an Internet company uh, that is providing uh, that particular utility, the, you, you know, Internet as utility. And uh, they are uh, in many ways. In, in our lives, in our, in our society specifically, uh, have become intertwined and they really shouldn't be because of that conflict of interest. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, I can give you another example on the wireless side. AT&T used to block uh, FaceTime over cellular because they didn't want that on their network because, not because it, the network couldn't handle video calls, of course it could. They didn't want that competition to their phone network. And that so they blocked it, and it stayed that way for quite some time uh, on certain plans. So you had to change, you know, it was the idea is that, oh, you've got to change plans to get around that, to pay for that, to make it that extra. And, you know, this is just what they do. Yeah. And, uh, you know, long term, um, there are going to be a lot of kind of different ideas that we're going to have to, you know, we're going to have to work through, um, you know, whether it's a this idea that we can only do uh, certain types of you know, I'll say certain types of traffic over a network, um, you know, or you've got certain services that are limited to a, a specific amount of data. Um, you know, the this um, prioritizing of data is a whole nother one that, you know, T-Mobile has been so public about with both its uh, its music and the music freedom and also in, uh, you know, in the, 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 the ability to watch video over the network and that they're basically saying if you use these particular services, you're not going to have to pay for it. And uh, the, the, these are the, these are all these ideas and concepts, maybe is a better way to put it, that are 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 still very fluid. And we've got to figure out um, as a, you know, as a country, how we're going to deal with these things here. Net neutrality seemed like the best way to put in a set of rules uh, that allowed for at least a, a customer focused approach to this stuff. But it's not necessarily the the only approach that can be viewed with this. And boy, I would love there to be real competition because I am, you know, hate having Comcast as essentially my only option. I can get a 12 megabit DSL, which just wouldn't even be enough for us to do the show, Mickey. It, it would be, you know, dreadful with, a, I think it's a two megabit upload or a one megabit upload. So I'm forced with Comcast and the price they charge is absolutely horrible for uh, for the amount of, you know, the, the 100 megabits down is uh, 100 bucks a month. And it's just... Uh, you know, I wish there was some competition here because I would certainly like more upstream uh, here, but you, you just, you can't even get it. Even if I paid for a, you know, much bigger, uh, uh, you know, like a 300 megabit, I, I'm sure I can get that. But then the upstream is still just a marginal, like 20 up or something like that. Well, and that's, you know, that is the one thing that fiber has going for it that the, uh, the cable companies have yet to, to, you know, get in stride with, which is the mirroring of, or the parody of both the upstream and the downstream. And it's, it's kind of a weird thing that they've done it like that, but ultimately it makes you decide on, uh, you know, maybe going for a higher tier if you need to have that upstream. Yeah, and of course that's a part of the DOCSIS limitations. Uh, that's actually just kind of the way the the, the cable company structure is actually built out on. Hmm, interesting. Well, uh, either way, uh, hopefully, John, that answers you know some of your uh, your questions for us on uh, this, or we provided some additional insight uh, on this topic. But uh, definitely appreciate you uh, bringing the topic up and uh, getting us to chat about it a little bit more. 
Next up is a question from Michael, and he says, Mickey and Joey, I have a question uh, for Joey from episode 598. I realize the risks of this veering off topic, but what uh, is a really true, or is it really true, that restarting a Windows PC is somehow fundamentally different from shutting it down and powering it back up, uh, and that the restart has somehow superior restorative effects when things start to go haywire? Michael. Yes, it actually is true. It's starting Windows 8, I think it was Windows 8, they created the, the, the shutdown is essentially now a hibernate. So uh, instead of doing a, a shutdown like it used to, it is, it's just hibernating the computer. So it makes it seem like the computer's faster. Well, and this again, so to your question, Michael, uh, yes, it would be superior from a clearing out the RAM perspective. And uh, this is, again, starting, I guess, in Windows 8. I didn't realize that. I thought it was Windows 10. But so if you're using Windows 7, it's not shutting down, actually does shut it down. I think it does, but I, I don't. Yes, because Hibernate was a separate option in Windows 7. You can turn off this deep... What is it? It's like a sleep mode, a power sleep or something like that. Is, uh, it's, it's in the control panel where you can disable this function if you want shutdown to actually clean up everything and make it restorative. Uh, you can easily confirm this by looking at your task manager under the uh, performance tab. You will see the system uptime in there. And if you just do shutdowns, you will see that that does not reset to zero when you do a shutdown. And you will see it reset to zero when you do a restart. Interesting. Uh, I've uh, somebody who usually leaves computers on. I don't actually shut them down. So I would have probably never even realized that that was what was happening. So there's your answer, Michael. Uh, And finally, today's a question from Brian. He says, greetings, Mickey and Joey. Just wanted to say, love the show. You guys have the best and most consistent sounding podcast I've ever heard. Brian, thank you very much for that compliment. So uh, start. Uh, He says, then I just got the iPhone 10. I'm upgrading from an iPhone 6S plus. I have not done a fresh install since I got my first iPhone, which was the iPhone 4S. I guess I have three options when it comes to setting up the new iPhone. I can either one, back just back up and restore using my MacBook. Two, I can use the wireless option of putting the two phones near each other and letting the things transfer from old to new. Or three, I can start from scratch with the new phone. With my 6S Plus, I noticed it was starting to lag and I figured it was uh, it'd be good to use option three. When I activated the phone, I noticed option two and I was wondering if it was the same as option one and if it does uh, copy any of the garbage that is left on the phone from installing uh, or uninstalling apps or if uh, anything that causes the phones to slow down over time. So I did end up using option two because it seemed like the settings and data were transferred from 6S plus to 10. Uh, Then the apps were downloaded via Wi-Fi. I can start over with any of the options at any time, of course, but I wanted uh, your opinion on this because I know you've faced the same dilemma. Love the show. Keep up the good work, Brian. Uh, So this is is a really great question. Um, I was faced with this as well, Brian, and I I either forgot that iOS 11 had this new side-by-side thing where they show the kind of the the whirl, uh, the, you know, all the, 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 I'll say it's a barcode, but it's not even a barcode. It's just a, a kind of a weird, uh, you I know, I think it's using NFC. My, uh, Apple TV did that. Actually, I had plugged it in and my phone was in my pocket and it says, we detect a local phone nearby. Do you want to use the settings on this? I'm like, okay, I guess so. It, it kind of shocked me because, uh, yeah, I had, I forgot about that feature as well. Is it NFC or is it Bluetooth? Because it's I don't know. It's it's cl- it needs to be pretty close by. So it could be NFC, but I don't know if it was that close or not. I really didn't look into the details of it. Well, either way, I noticed it as well, Brian, and um, I did transfer over the initial settings. And I think all that was was basically the iCloud and iTunes settings because then I ultimately then went off to number three and I started from scratch with the new phone. So um, the uh, there's a similar process that happens when you do 
a restore from iCloud where it just downloads the applications and then from the applications, um, you you kind of have to reset them up. At least you have to re-enter the passcodes for them. So um, it is a little bit different than doing a backup and restore to a computer, which just kind of carries everything over, and including all of that kind of loose uh, code that is uh, oftentimes referred to as bit rot uh, that could cause issues in the future when you restore to a new device. So I've always uh, restored to a new device. Usually it's through iTunes and a full backup and restore, but I think the latest one I just did an iCloud restore. You do, uh, if, if, as long as you use, use the encrypted backup option in iTunes, it actually saves pretty much all of your passwords on all of your applications. So you don't have to re-enter everything uh, once the restore is done. That does include all of the applications, which could be important for you if you're using old applications. Now with iOS 11, probably not so much because the applications have to be released within the past two years. But if you have an older device or want to keep an application that that you need to install on a new device that's no longer in the App Store, you need to do a full backup and restore through that method on in iTunes. Uh, however, when you do an iCloud restore, you are restoring uh, the applications that you, in fact, select backup, which you may or may not have those selected. So the data within your applications uh, is the only thing that's backed up to iCloud, not the app itself. So really, it's basically, you know, your two options, you know, uh, one and two, where you're, restor you're restoring it all, you're bringing over the stuff from your old old devices. And you know, usually it seems like they do a pretty good job of filtering that out, Mickey, but you, you always start from scratch. But I, I, I have not myself, my iPad uh, Pro right now is still basically the same image I started with on my iPad 2. Yeah, and a uh, couple of points there. Number one, um, it's important also to realize how applications work in iOS. They're all sandboxed, meaning the uh, the data itself, as Joey mentioned, the stuff that's getting backed up to iCloud is the only data that's out there. There's not like other other data hanging out there in uh, the operating system that's working within uh, those particular applications. If you've got an app and that app is using data, that data is, you know, in, like in an, I'll call it an envelope, of, that is the, the application. So that's where it all is. And so you're restoring all of that over there, good, bad, and indifferent and, and stuff. So, um, and on the flip side of that, uh, I do set up devices as new. And sometimes I, I, I feel like it, it does, you know, it's it's good to do that. Um, my 6s was actually functioning fairly well, a little bit slow, you know, in certain places, but fairly well. I did, was, didn't really have real issues with it. Um, the the performance is really unchanged with a, a fresh install on the iPhone 10. So, um, you know, having to do it over again, I probably would still do the fresh install. But if uh, I was, uh, you know, under a time crunch, I would not have felt bad about just doing a transfer over uh, of the information from, uh, you know, from my 6s just because it seemed it was working just fine. And also, the, I had also done a restore of that device uh, or a fresh install of the operating system on that device probably about a year ago. So it wasn't it wasn't like it was multi years old at this point. And I'd say I'd recommend using the iTunes backup and restore if you really want to make sure your new device is as much as possible like your old device. Yeah, and that's a really good point, too. If you've got the time to do it, plug it into the computer, back it up, and restore it uh, to the new device. And that's uh, that's a good way to go. It's also a really good way to go with your updates. If you have the opportunity to do the software updates through there, um, you can uh, alleviate uh, some potential issues that could happen, uh, which I've had in the past, as many others have as well, 
Um, but uh, I know a lot of times, again, it has to do with time and you just are going, yeah, I want to do this update. And you just install the, you know, the stuff over the air. And that generally works just fine as well. Well, if you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Send us email to questions at the cell phone junkie.com or give us a call 650-999-0524 and we'll get whatever you have to say on a future show. Joey, thank you very much as always for your time. We'll talk to you later. Thanks for listening. For more information about the stories you've just heard, visit us at thecellphonejunkie.com.